Now, Hamlet, where's Polonius? At supper. At supper? Where? Not where he eats, but where he is eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are in at him. Your worm is your only emperor for diet. We fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service. Two dishes, but to one table. That's the end. Alas, alas. A man may fish with the worm that hath eat of a king, and eat of the fish that hath fed of that worm. What dost thou mean by this? Nothing but to show you how a king may go a progress through the guts of a beggar. Hi, I'm Alexa. And I'm Ian. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And what are we doing today? Well, Ian, we're talking about worms and caterpillars. We've really moved a long way from our vertebrate beginnings. <laughs> I know. The smallest, smallest, most humble creatures. We did rats because we wanted to be humble. Now we're doing worms. I'm really excited, though, because I am super excited to hear what you have to say about worms and caterpillars in the Middle Ages. Because yeah. I really, literally, like, everything I know is 16th century and beyond. So, like, well, I have a total blank. I hope you're going to talk about dragons. Oh, uh, I didn't think about worms, W-Y-R-M-S, but I hope I have some good stuff for you. Uh, I mean, the thing about worms and caterpillars is they've been with us since the beginning. They're much older than we are as real creatures, but they're not very well understood even today. I mean, we probably don't even know half of what there is to know about these small invertebrate creatures. It's also a huge category, of course, because worm is not a scientific designation. It's just sort of a descriptive of small squiggly things without a spinal cord and no legs. <laughs> not, not wormus wormus? There is no wormus wormus. So this little uh, piece that we read, tell me about who's talking and what they're up to. So this is from Hamlet, if you hadn't guessed. And it's a little conversation between Claudius, who is his Hamlet's uncle, who has killed his father. And Hamlet is supposed to be busy revenging himself for this. But instead, he busies himself with a lot of other things, including at one point killing partly by accident, Polonius, who's hiding behind a, a curtain and makes a noise. And Hamlet says, oh, we should have brought this up when we did rats. Hamlet says, a rat, a rat, and stabs the curtain and, of course, kills Polonius. And then he takes Polonius's body and disappears with it. So at this point, Claudius knows that Polonius is dead. And he's asking Hamlet, basically, like, what have you done with the, with the body of Polonius? And Hamlet, who throughout the play sort of pretends madness uh, and is kind of sarcastic and obnoxious in many, many ways, very kind of teenagery, even though he's supposed to be maybe 30, um, is basically just being insulting and turning a, a bizarre moral out of the, like, the body of Polonius. So Polonius is at supper with the worms, but he's not eating worms. He's being eaten by them, which... Yes. Um, you know, reminds me of a camp song that uh, 
that I was taught at age seven on the bus on the way. Oh, I think to, I may know this too. Yeah, on the way to um, Camp Orkaila in the San Juan I- Islands, they taught us, you know, the worms crawl in, in the, the worms crawl, crawl out. out, the worms and, play pinochle on. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they served us spaghetti for dinner. Yeah, so, worms and was, worms and bodies are, you know, like dead bodies are have a long-term uh, kind of association. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's watched CSI knows that that's how you figure out how long body's been in the ground, sort of what stage the the worms are at. And in fact, in the Middle Ages, this was also a fascination. So um, there's a poem from the 15th century where a guy falls asleep next to a tomb in a church and has a vision. And in the vision, the poem is called The Disputation Between the Body and the Worms. In the vision, the body of the, in the tomb, the body of a, a wealthy, socially prominent woman is having an argument with the worms. And so the body says, could you leave me alone, please? Like, why are you eating me? And the worms say, no, no, we won't go away while one bone's connected to another until um, we've scoured them and polished them and made them clean, too. That's our work. We don't expect any pay for it. We don't have any need for gold or silver. We really only do this because we love to feast on flesh. If we if we could smell or taste, we wouldn't be eating you because you stink. <laughs> and, and also you look horrible, but we have no eyes. So you, know, you should be glad that we are eating you. Like, that's basically the whole poem is this sort of like celebration of the worm's tolerance for the disgusting, rotting human corpse. Which the worms we, win. <laughs> I mean, I usually think that worms are attracted to the smell of rotting meat, which is why they're there, rather than, well, if we could eat anything else or we knew the difference, we would be somewhere else. <laughs> I know, that's why the poem's so funny. And I mean, it's that kind of literally gallows humor that makes Hamlet such a good play, too. I mean, Hamlet is one of those plays, it's a tragedy, of course, everybody's dead on the stage at the end. But there's also this really subversive humor about it that you see in this scene where he's taunting Claudius with the with yes. the worms feasting on Polonius's flesh. <laughs> I think gallows humor is a great, a great way of, of, of talking about that. And it is popular. I guess less so, you don't hear as much gallows humor today, but certainly, you know, Middle Ages and the Renaissance, they were perfectly happy to, to, you know, be humorous about these kind of subjects. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder, partly modern embalming practices are clearly a kind of safeguard against these insidious others, the worms that come in and and consume the, the human corpse. It doesn't work, by the way. It just takes longer to decompose. But unless, unless you're a, very, a saint, right? If, yeah. if you're a saint, oh, don't you're a saint. saint. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, a yeah. mummy. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because you chose this example from Shakespeare. But when I was looking at worms in the Middle Ages, one of the sources that comes up again and again is one of these old English poems. So pre-1066, these poems written in the 
the indigenous language of England at the time. I won't read it in Old English because that would be a travesty. But it it's about this army of worms uh, led by a general named Giefer, which I guess means ravenous. And it comes to decompose the body, this army does. The whole thing is described as an act of war, essentially. And these worms are just so violent and so hungry, and they're ripping this body apart. So this is a theme that goes really far back in, in English literature, sort of over the language divide of 1066 and back into the sort of shadowy origins of poetic literature in England. So Shakespeare's still doing it all the way at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century. Yeah, I wonder when, it end, when that ends. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that because my assignment was to think about the Middle Ages. <laughs> of course. That's your problem. <laughs> hey, I'm not a Victorianist. I, I have no idea. <laughs> So worms are, you know, associated with death and the destruction of the body. So they obviously play a role in the Christian understanding of resurrection. You mentioned saints' bodies going uncorrupted, but Mm -hmm. the rest of us, you know, we just have to molder away in the ground until the day of resurrection when our flesh is miraculously restored. So you see a lot of artistic images, especially from the 14th century and the early 15th century, of bodies in the process of being consumed by not just worms, but other creepy crawlies. I don't know if anybody's ever actually observed a spider or a scorpion consuming a body, but it's just gross enough that they they include those in these uh, transy tomb representations of bodies being consumed worms frogs snakes all kinds of of slithering things sort of sliding in and out of the abdomen and the and the chest cavity of these these half decomposed bodies i i kind of wonder i don't i sort of don't think that frogs eat would eat a, a body but what about snakes? I don't, I don't, do they scavenge at all, right? I mean, essentially it's what it is. It's free calories. Right. And I mean, clearly people thought they did. For the same poem, the disputation between the bodies and the worms, the worms sort of like end in this great chorus of delighting in the destruction of the body. They, they say, for all venomous worms, it does behoove to do this labor. Soon they'll prove. With us to stay, they're fully set. They'll waste and devour you utterly yet. The cockatrix, the basilisk, and the dragon, the toad, and the tortoise with his shell on his back, the newt, the mole, and the scorpion, the crabs, and the ants, both red and black, the viper, the adder, all prepped to attack, the maggots, the leeches, the spiders, all kinds, and the lizard, and others are not far behind. So that's the full panoply of icky things that are going to crawl through your body and, and tear it joint from joint. So it reminds me, when we were doing rats and mice, there's the category of vermin, which includes, you know, rats and mice, but a lot of other animals as well. And then there's this category of the uh, kind of the, the creepy crawly, I don't know what you would call them, the, the, you know, the, the creatures associated with, with death, which also is a big group, which sort of overlaps with the vermin group in some ways. Uh, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like um, categorization is really interesting when you begin thinking about 
worms and caterpillars. Right, and mostly they do, well, at least worms do have these negative associations, but there are also in the Middle Ages some positive associations for worms. For example, they have this idea of spontaneous generation, right? That rotting meat gives rise to maggots, and maggots are in their mind just another kind of worm, right? So maggots are not, as we understand them today, a life stage in insect development. They are their own thing, and they're a thing that's generated by the heat of rotting meat, whether it's human meat or any other kind of meat. And so this idea of a worm or a maggot, which that's, is that's in Hamlet too. <laughs> that's yeah. the passage we didn't read. <laughs> right, right. This imperfect animal, right? Like it's it's disgusting and associated with death and 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 rot, but it is born spontaneously, and so it becomes a kind of metaphor for the for the incarnation of Christ. Because Ooh. Christ arises spontaneously, and there's even one writer. I think I think it might be um, Augustine who says that the the Virgin's womb is like pure meat. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I actually I think he says pure earth, but the idea that the this like lowly substance, meat or earth, mud, can generate spontaneously generate an organism, in this case, the Messiah. Well, uh, I mean, a lot of the Annunciation paintings, they have the creation of the child through a beam of light, right? Like he's, you know, little baby sliding down the beam of light or whatever it is. But that idea that it's, it's sort of like divine light that is, that is doing this wormy thing inside the Virgin Mary. That's so cool. Especially because that's, both similar to what happens later on, but like also, like I didn't even think of it that way at all. I've never never heard of that before, so that's super cool. Yeah, and I mean it's it's a pretty established tradition. As I mentioned, it's in the early Christian fathers. Cassiodorus talks about it. Uh, Maximus of Turin talks about it. But it's also you know in the medieval sources, so in the Carolingian sources and Peter the Lombard in the twelfth century talks about it. It's it's there. It's in the Glossa Ordinaria, which is sort of the authoritative source of biblical interpretation in the Middle Ages. So anybody who was educated could not help but look at a maggot and also think of Christ. And to me, that's like a really powerful way in which exegesis, this habit of interpreting the Bible then extends to the interpretation of natural phenomena and allows people to really see God in the details. So a worm, the smallest, lowliest thing, then becomes departure point for the contemplation of the divine. The whole bestiary tradition does quite a bit of that. I don't know of a bestiary that includes a worm in it, but you could see it's the same pattern, right? Like it's the um, kind of glossing of those things. Right. And before we turn to uh, caterpillars more specifically, I have one other little, this is sort of the real part, you know, the fantastical is spontaneous generation, but the real part about worms, which actually do eat human corpses, but they also 
can thrive in living human bodies. There are all kinds of intestinal worms that you can get or subcutaneous worms. Not so nice to think about, but a study that was published recently in the International Journal of Paleopathology demonstrates that monks from the Augustinian Friary of Cambridge suffered intestinal worms at a much higher rate than the non-monastic citizens of the town of Cambridge in that And why was this? Well, it had to do with the way the friars were composting poop. Uh-huh. Not to find a point on it. Uh-huh. I, I teach at a land-grant university, and we have an extension program. And the extension specialists go out, and they teach farmers, you know, how to do various agricultural things in a safe fashion. And one of the things they teach is composting. I have a really cool sticker on my water bottle that says, Utah composting. <laughs> so when you when you compost, you need the interior temperature of the compost to reach a certain level to kill any of the pathogens, plant pathogens, human pathogens that are in the material that you're composting. And this is especially important if you're composting what is politely called night soil. That is to say, poop, human poop, human animal poop. poop as well. Um, since worms, certain kinds of intestinal worms, thrive in the guts of, of mammals, when they get pooped out, they don't, that, that doesn't kill them. They go into a dormant, dormancy stage, and these, they have these little eggs, essentially, and they're just waiting to be consumed by another animal in some form or another. So if you're spreading this manure, this composted manure on your fields to grow better crops, and you don't compost it to a high enough internal temperature, then you start the cycle again, right? The, the poop that's being used in your field then becomes part of your digestive process again. So you're you're eating the eggs of the worms and then they grow in your intestines again. So basically these friars were not very good at composting. They weren't as good as the ordinary citizens of Cambridge or the farmers in the area of Cambridge. They were growing their own food, but they weren't adequately composting and they were getting intestinal worms as a result. I I think a lot of people though uh, had some, had intestinal parasites all throughout the past. I mean, certainly our farmyard, we have to worm our animals. I, I actually have to stop at the store today and get some wormer because we're, uh, you know, behind on our deworming. Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah. If we I didn't mean, do anything, they'd be cycling back and forth all the time. But right. People these days would be horrified. You know, you'd be horrified if you had intestinal worms, I think. You know, you can have them for years, too, without knowing that you have them, um, yeah. depending on the type of worm. So... Yeah, these monks were just not very good at composting. Now, one thing they didn't do, because they didn't really realize that they had this problem, I mean, I'm sure they all had digestive discomfort, but didn't and couldn't keep the weight on, um, but they couldn't understand why. Um, One thing they didn't do is excommunicate the worms. But (laughs) excommunication of pestilential animals was actually a thing in the Middle Ages. So... That's my, my pivot to caterpillars, because in the year 1547, famously, at the town of Roma in France, 
the bishop threatened to excommunicate the caterpillars that were eating all of the farmer's crops. But a court-appointed advocate came and said, no, you don't need to excommunicate these caterpillars. We need to develop a coexistence solution so that the caterpillars can have some of the crops and the farmers get the rest. So I'm going to negotiate with the caterpillars. That was that was the result of that particular instance. And this was not the first time somebody had tried to excommunicate or had actually excommunicated caterpillars. The first instance actually occurred in the 12th century. The first instance we know of, the Bishop of Laon in France excommunicated the local caterpillars. So caterpillars were clearly a problem, a more visible problem, uh, one, one that people understood because they were not living inside their stomachs, but out in the fields consuming the foods that they wanted to put in their stomachs. I think there's other other animals for which there were judicial or theological solutions rather than poison, extermination, whatever it might be. I mean, this, this yeah. idea that you treat them as if they are members of a community. Right. I think snails also frequently got excommunicated. excommunicated. Anything that eats your food. Though I'm kind of encroaching on your territory by beginning with something that happened in the 16th century. It had been going on since the 12th century, this sense that in addition to maybe trying some natural pesticides, you could use theological measures to control particularly uh, crop pests, insects that prey on crops. Well, there weren't a lot of alternatives. I mean, there's no wide application of pesticides that I am aware of in the pre-modern period. No, more like curses, and as we talked right. about with rats and mice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, you could, I suppose, let loose a flock of birds. They would, they would take care of your caterpillars. But first, you'd have to assemble a flock of birds and transport it. I, I don't know. There's no medieval source that I know of that talks about. Uh, yeah, they, they don't have realistic solutions. <laughs> yeah. Caterpillars, though, I mean, when I think of medieval caterpillars, I mostly think of silk and the whole social and economic value of silk. Silk, you know, is, is the cocoon material, a particular kind of moth, so a caterpillar um, that makes a cocoon and then pupates in this, in this cocoon. And of course, silk or sericulture, the farming of silk began in China, but by the sixth century, it was being practiced in the Eastern Mediterranean under the Byzantine Empire. And there was this very huh. strict control of, of silk production. Um, but because it was so centralized and so controlled, they were actually never able to produce enough for their own consumption. So they still had to buy silk from China. Um, and or from from points west on the on the so-called Silk Road. So when I think of medieval caterpillars, I think of the, the silkworms. Silk, the silkworms, yeah. yeah. Which is a positive connotation. Yeah, um, and there's this great story um, in the Cantigas de Santa Maria, written by the King uh, Alfonso the Tenth of. Spain, he was known as the wise, and it's a story about a woman who kept silkworms, and when they started to die, she made a promise to the virgin that if the virgin would save her silkworms, 
she would weave a silk veil for the statue of the Virgin in the cathedral at Segovia. The Virgin saved her silkworms. The woman promptly forgot to weave the silk veil. She just forgot. But the silkworms didn't forget. And they wove a veil for the Virgin for and reminded the woman to give it to, to her. And, and King Alfonso says, and, and I put the veil over the statue of the Virgin myself. So I know that this actually happened. But it's a it's a miracle, right? I mean, it's a miraculous event. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, yes. not not a you know leave the task long enough and the worms will do it for you. Right, right. I mean, the story goes that Justinian, the emperor um, in in the sixth century, paid these two Persian Christian monks to go to China and steal the secret of silk making, and that the monks basically did this by hollowing out a walking stick and sticking the little Bombix moth cocoons down this hollow tube and then like screwing it back together and walking back to Byzantium. Of course, that's completely baloney because silkworms, as the story by Alfonso suggests, are very, very sensitive creatures and they would not have survived that kind of a journey. True. But it's a good oh, story. It's, yeah, I thought it was, I always, I always took it as truth. <laughs> <laughs> You know, probably it's more the case that Justinian established these mulberry orchards outside of Constantinople and thereby, you know, created a kind of environment friendly to silk farming. Yes, because they do eat mulberry trees. That is their only food. Ian, tell me about early modern caterpillars and worms. And worms, which are pretty much the same category. I mean... What you pointed out about the the way animals were organized becomes, I mean, it's even more interesting when you consider the kind of natural history that they're trying to do, because they categorized worms and caterpillars by sort of constitution rather than by structure, right? So we would say they're invertebrates, mm-hmm. you know, which is a structural thing, and they're getting lumped together in a category that largely it's often referred to as insects, like the whole category, right? Like mm-hmm. insect covers all these little creatures mm-hmm. and they're defined by being creatures that are bred out of putrefaction or corruption, right? Mm-hmm. That's their def- That's their defining thing. So all creatures bred from putrefaction and corruption, mm-hmm. uh, including others in this category, like eels or snakes or presumably even mice, which as we talked about last time can be spontaneously generated. That's all this sort of large category you know the the famous the locusts in the bible are mm-hmm. in some translations some early modern translations are, are called caterpillars mm-hmm. right? so it's like clearly interchangeable but that makes them really interesting because corruption itself is so important as a kind of like a fundamental principle mm-hmm. uh, francis bacon you know like early proto-scientist writer said corruption is a reciprocal to generation and he calls them nature's two terms or boundaries the guides of life and death so you have generation and corruption and you have creatures of generation which are like us and tigers uh, and mm-hmm. then you have creatures of, of corruption which are the worms and the caterpillars and all the things that we think of as, as invertebrates mm-hmm. these are the two the two sort of basic kind of creatures you get which means it's sort of basic to their nature and they're always they always reflect the substance that they're generated the substances that they're generated from so they're categorized often in natural history texts 
by the thing that they are bred from. So their their claim is that like every plant has a caterpillar, just like the silkworm can only eat the mulberry, right? They would have said, well, the mulberry worm is the silkworm. I mean, even the fact that we call it a silkworm when it's clearly a caterpillar, not a worm, <laughs> right. right? Reflects right. this kind of this kind of tradition. So every plant has a caterpillar, or every caterpillar has a plant. Uh, and it goes beyond that because pretty much everything seems to have its own particular worms. Even stones were considered to be huh. places where worms could be bred. So you crack open a stone and it's like, oh, look, there's worms inside there. I'm assuming some of the fossils would have see, been seen as evidence of, of that as well. And then humans, all that stuff about the intestinal parasites, these are our worms, right? They belong to us. They are part of us. And if we have them, they have us. The tapeworm is a traditional one that they thought of as like, so connected with humans that children are born with tapeworms in them. And as you grow up, your worm grows up too. And they grow, your worm gets old along with you, right? So like, there it is. You're born with your worm. Your worm goes with you. They're also connected with region and climate. So they're like a regional thing, but they could be caused by, you know, an east wind could cause worms and caterpillars to appear yeah. of a particular kind. So they're, you know, like, wow. This, this is a climate phenomenon. <laughs> but it's also like the microbiome. So our, 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 you know, contemporary conception of the human body as not unitary, as being made up of our human cells, but also cells that belong to microorganisms, perhaps also macroorganisms like worms. Sure. There's a weird consonance between this early modern concept of the human body or any other body or thing having its microbiome and this early modern concept of for everything it's worm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, they're at this boundary between like life and death, but also between like the you and the not you, right? I mean, like where does your, where do you end, you know, do your, is your, are your worms part of who you are just another part of your body or not? There are a lot of, interesting sort of the oddly modern facets to some of this, these, these beliefs. They were mostly negative. Yes, it's true, right? Worms and caterpillars are, they're gluttonous, right? If tigers will eat you up, worms and caterpillars will also eat you up, but they do it en masse. Uh, so they're mostly thought of or characterized by their ability to appear in large numbers and to eat stuff, which, you know, so they're like a pest. But there's positives too, and completely different than the medieval positives. So we have claims that because they're made out of the most basic kind of form of, of uh, creation itself, right? They're just made instantly out of things that they have more variety than anything else, right? So they demonstrate the variety of nature uh, in, you know, to the, the enlightened mind that can, can consider this singular and rare variety of, the, of worms and caterpillars. And then uh, Francis Bacon says, look, if you want to know about life and death, if you want to know the cause, like why does life exist? You should observe worms and caterpillars because that's the most fundamental and observable place where creation happens because it happens just by itself, right? It's like that instant process. So, you know, and, and Bacon's very much interested, you know, like the secrets of life and death too, right? So like for him, these small creatures are the place to study this. He says it's where nature shows the power of God most clearly is in uh, the worms and caterpillars, which is a weird echo of the Virgin Mary, I think. Right. Right. And so it, it still see, goes back to God. Do you see early scientists, early natural scientists, focusing their research on 
worms or or doing you know worms broadly defined doing investigations when you start to get this kind of empirical science i guess i'm asking this because i'm thinking how in modern science there are animals that are sort of typically studied within certain practices so for example geneticists love to study fruit flies Mm -hmm. Uh, behaviorists love to study rats you know there's kind of ideal animals for the study of certain kinds of phenomena well bacon is certainly advocating for this right he's suggesting that people do these kinds of things and when we learn about the old idea of spontaneous generation in school i think we're often what we what is pointed out is that you know early experiments showed this to be true because would people would like leave meat out and then there would be maggots right uh, so like those are those those are the first experiments mm-hmm. they're they're not doing some crucial thing which is you know protecting it from like, any creature that's sneaking along and putting eggs in there right uh, but it's clear that like they're they're doing a lot of putrefaction stuff right they're ex- they're interested in putrefaction even if they're not coming to the correct conclusions about it Mm-hmm. that they're certainly um, working with that. So there's the positives there. And then there's clearly like this ironic tension because if worms and caterpillars are creatures of putrefaction, putrefaction is death, right? So like generation is life, putrefaction is death. That's why worms are you know in the grave. But the creatures of putrefaction are suddenly being held up as the best examples of generation that there is. Um, and they're typified by like super productivity, right? So like what grows fastest is the creatures of putrefaction, right? Uh, like weeds, for instance, are weeds because they grow better than other plants. So there's an ironic kind of contrast where the, the creatures that are supposed to emblematize death and destruction are in fact the places where the creation of life is most visible and, and that are the most vital of any other like creatures. So I, there's like an inherent tension there, which they never really uh, resolve, but certainly like these early natural philosophers are interested in in these creatures in part because of that. And then it it leads them into theological difficulties, right? So they inherit all these theological traditions, but a guy named Daniel Leclerc, who wrote a worm book, you know, in the 18th century, much of his, the early part of his book is consumed with this question that he can't quite come to an answer about, which is about the tapeworm that Adam had. Because Adam's creatures- of course, right? Because all humans are born with, you know, all humans are, you know, created with worms inside them from the beginning. And God is supposed to have created creatures at one in one particular part of creation. God didn't like create more creatures later on for specific purposes, right? Like creatures were created. So the worm should have been created, should be inside Adam. Mm-hmm. But if the worm is a creature of corruption and putrefaction and death, that would mm. mean that Adam has putrefaction, corruption, and death inside him. But those are supposed to be the things that are caused by the fall. Adam is supposed to be immortal before, before he eats the fruit. So the question Daniel Leclerc says is like, was the, was the worm put inside Adam at the fall? Just manhandled in there? And, you know, it just happens not to be in any of the texts, but like, that's what happened. Or was the worm inside Adam from the beginning and it was corrupted by the fall, like everything else, and therefore became a creature of corruption, even though it wasn't originally so. And, you know, he, he doesn't really come up with a good answer to any of these questions, but you could see how it precipitates a kind of theological crisis 
if they believe that worms are everywhere, they're inherently part of us and who we are. How does that how does that fit into the narrative? I feel like I could have been a, a Puritan theologian. I would have said it was obviously Eve's fault <laughs> because the worm was in the apple. That's right. She, she put Isn't it in there the apple. Isn't always a worm in the apple, right? Of course there's a worm in the apple. But that's the apple worm, see, right? That's the worm that eats apples. Uh, but at the moment of the fall, it became the human worm. Became the human the worm. The apple of... You know, it was the forbidden fruit. It was the apple of wisdom, apple of knowledge. And the serpent, which is, after all, another one of these creatures. A worm. Is a worm, which was cursed by deliberately, you know, like that. There's a biblical curse against that creature, Mm -hmm. which was presumably innocent before that and became corrupted by the fall. Anyway, I think it's interesting that they were, despite their sort of interest in, you know, nascent interest in experimentation and taxonomy, right, that they can become totally wrapped up in this discussion about Adam's tapeworm based on all sorts of interesting conclusions or just the idea that Adam had a worm, right? Yeah, but if it's the truism that all people have a worm, I can see why that becomes kind of troubling. I love that it's Adam's worm and not Eve's worm that they're concerned about, too, because Eve also created prior to the fall. Yes, yes. From Adam, though, so presumably, she, if if he, you know, like, if she had a worm and he didn't, that would be even more interesting and problematic. <laughs> like, how did that happen? <laughs> I feel like we've come around with the snake and the worm and the fall to something you mentioned at the very beginning, which had to do with dragons. I didn't actually oh. pursue the worm W-Y-R-M. Um, partly because it didn't occur to me, but... It does occur to me now that um, a logical next step from worms and caterpillars is dragons. It is. Obviously, real beasts, if worms and worms, worms with an O and worms with a Y, are closely related organisms. That would be a a logical next step. Uh, Okay, so like the one... So one thing I'll leave you with in the early modern stuff is the kind of metaphorical use of caterpillars. This is very far from real caterpillars, except that it's it's sort of a metonymic connection because the phrase in English, caterpillars of the commonwealth, because it alliterates, Mm -hmm. is a much repeated phrase. And it becomes a way of insulting people that you don't like, Mm -hmm. right? You call them a caterpillar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mean that they are problematic in some way in some way that is sort of a, a function, part of their function within society. And you might expect a whole variety of people to be labeled this way, but the most common, interestingly enough, are is the poor, right? So the poor were considered to be caterpillars mm. because they consume but don't produce. But what's interesting is that they there's a thing going on in kind of economic theory that's a little bit like the kind of problems within the, in the animal side uh, because... They're not really theorizing the relationship between production and consumption. They have more to say about production. Consumption by itself is always a problem. And so they end up, for instance, blaming uh, economic conditions on the existence of the poor. So the poor cause recessions <laughs> rather than the other way around. Rather than you know, poor economic conditions result in poor people, right. they see the poor as somehow causative of a problem. And it's, there isn't a welfare state. It's not that the poor are not, they're not consuming anybody's stuff. You know, they're not taking from anybody else. But because they have this framework of the problems with consumption itself, they label the poor that way. 
they also call extortion, uh, usury, or just general covetousness gets to be, you know, characterized this way, which then ironically leads them to, to characterize rich people, the super rich in particular, as also being caterpillars. So the early stock market was a frequent place where you would say, those are just, they're caterpillars of the commonwealth there, right? They're like using everybody's stuff up. So you're either wealthy or you're poor, you're either, either way, you're a caterpillar of the commonwealth. I think it's really about anxieties about like the status of profit and consumption. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of about secrecy too, because a lot of the uh, caterpillars will infect things before you know, right? They're like they'll appear and secretly right. destroy your crops or like get inside the buds or... Right. Uh, we have a big problem with um, uh, sp- squash borers that like bore into the stems of our squash plants and you can't see anything and suddenly the plant's dead. So yep. that gener- that makes them a good w- uh, sort of tool for thinking about anxieties about secrecy or those who are acting in secret and maybe in destructive ways. Mm. That's all just, I'll leave it with, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> From the worm in the apple to the squash borer in the stem of the squash plant of the commonwealth yes gnawing away at the gnawing away at the source of our food for the winter i think we definitely need to turn our attention next to something really big and really glamorous and and clearly fantastical in lots of ways although you know but real caterpillars they're real and they're also super fantastic at least they're, they're more fantastic in the early period because they are more powerful right than they are now for sure and everyone's got one before we go we do have a listener question from our episode on the chinese dragon this listener wants to know about the dragon costume dance at on chinese uh, new year apparently is it's really common to have a dragon costume dancing at new year and um, this listener wants to know what's up with that and how does that fit into the dragon lore that we talked about? Oh, yeah, we definitely saw those in Seattle when I was growing up and we'd go to Chinese New Year festivities in the international district. Um, so as early as the Han Dynasty, it turns out, there were people doing some version of the dragon dance. There's actually some visual evidence of this and textual evidence as well. So that's like the third century BCE to the first century CE. And um, yeah, so it's really, really old tradition. Now I love a puppet. I really love puppets. Um, In fact, I'm often a kind of laughing stock amongst my professional colleagues for my enthusiasm about puppets. And I think of these, dragons that I would see when I was a kid um, as being like giant puppets manipulated by half a dozen or even a dozen puppeteers, a really long dragon, a really spectacular long dragon puppet, larger than human size is quite a sight to see. And it's very tightly choreographed to like drums and cymbals and this kind of pulsing music that I think captures the energy of the dragon. And then there's always somebody like sort of running ahead of the dragon or dancing ahead of the dragon with a kind of sphere on a pole. And I think that that's our pearl of wisdom that we saw in the nine dragons scroll. The dragons are always seeking this pearl. So that's kind of cool. 
I think oh, that cool. the yeah, I think that the dragons too in in the dragon dances are um, you know they go back to this association that Winston told us about with water and rain particularly. So there were these sort of weather deities that would have been appeased by these dragon dances. And apparently they were incorporated pretty early on into other kinds of festivals um, by the Tang dynasty. You know, they were just really common in festivals throughout the year because of the importance of rain to, you know, a society that, that although urbanized relied heavily on agriculture and farming, rice farming in particular is very water intensive. Well, you know, when we say it's good luck for us, we think good, you know, good luck means winning the lottery, but in you know, pre-modern societies, good luck meant you, you would harvest your grain and survive to the next year. Right. Exactly. Not starving is extremely good luck. So that's the dragon dance. Fits perfectly into the lore and has a long history. So it's a great thing to add, to add on to our discussion of Chinese dragons. Absolutely. Before we go, a heads up for our regular listeners, International Unicorn Day, yes, it's a thing, is coming up on April 9th, and we will be putting out a special episode on the 9th on, you guessed it, the true unicorn. This is in addition to our regular two-week schedule, so basically you're going to get an extra episode because unicorns are so awesome. Until next time, you fantastic beasts. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation.